0: Good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? You guys got an extra hour of sleep, and that's the best you could do? I thought we'd be excited today. Like, yeah, I got an extra hour of sleep. Give it up for the extra hour of sleep, at least. There we go. If you have a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. As we go into the fourth part of our sermon series, and we're going to be looking today at verses 1 through 18 in Acts chapter 11. Today we're going to be covering our fourth core value of our church, and that is the fourth core value is welcoming people of all backgrounds into a Christ-centered community with a message that I've entitled, There is a Place at the Table for You. Here at Rock, as I said earlier, we want everybody to feel welcome. We want everybody to feel that there is a place at the table for them including, especially including, those who would feel, well, wait a minute, I'm just too unworthy, I, I don't belong. The fact of the matter is, none of us are worthy, and none of us belong in of our own selves, but we belong because of what Christ did for us, because of His goodness. I'm not one of these preachers that likes to start a message with a hip-hop culture you know, illustration to show how hips I am to the musics of today and how cool I am. There's nothing cool about me. I can't get up here looking like this, and I'm not cool, but a big thing that right now evangelical subculture is focused like a laser on, ironically, is Kanye West. You guys following this? He comes out with this new album, Jesus is King. He says that he's a Christian. You got... I'd say all these evangelicals right now are just going nuts over this. They're all excited. They're all happy. Oh, he's one of us now. Kanye, everything's, everything's all about Kanye West now. Kanye, Kanye. He's a good guy. And then you have other people like, no, he's a, he's a liar. He's, he's this, he's that. The other thing, it's fake. It's not going to last. You know, don't trust him. Don't believe him. Now, I like to be a man of, you know, moderation when it comes to these kind of extreme viewpoints. And I like to take a wait-and-see approach. Because at the end of the day, my initial inclination is to say, this guy's a goofball. This guy's a goofball. And I mean, you know, he took Taylor Swift's award. So how good I am at my pop culture history from 10 years ago. And that shows how dated that is. But anyway, like, you know, who cares what Kanye West thinks? I don't care what he thinks. That's my first inclination. It's like, I went to seminary for years. Why aren't people asking what I think? But I'm not a celebrity. I'm not famous, and for whatever reason, our culture is infatuated with celebrity and fame, and I think all that is a bit problematic, okay? I think the kingdom of this world can be very alluring, and I do think that at times, evangelicals can be a bit naive. I mean, I've, I've seen this story play out before. Some of you are old enough to remember, like Bob Dylan, Jane Fonda. Look, I don't know where any of these people's hearts are at. At the end of the day, I hope all of them are right with God. I'm not judge or jury, I'm just a person. Ultimately, it's up to Christ. But I will say that if somebody's going to make a profession of faith, I think that's a good thing. And I want to give some time to see if there's going to be some fruit that plays out. If there is some fruit that plays out, then praise God, right? If if there's not, and somebody, you know, shows themselves to just, you know, not not be an actual follower of Christ, then we were prudent, at least, in our judgment, correct? And at the end of the day, we leave all these things over to Christ. But what I will say, the reason I bring this up is, I hope this person is redeemed. I really do hope so. Because while I can say, well, this is just Hollywood or, you know, the music world and celebrities and, you know, all the... Really, at the end of the day, do any of us deserve salvation? Well, the answer is no. We can say, well, such and such might be an unlikely follower of Christ... But if we really sit and think about it, all of us are unlikely followers of Christ. Maybe some of you had the benefit of being born and raised into a Christian home. And you had nice Christian parents and they brought you to church from the time you were little. And you know what? All that is great. But even you'd look back in your life and say, I'm still a sinner saved by grace. I didn't earn my salvation. I'm not... I'm nothing special, and for many of us, we weren't raised in such environments. And we would look back in our lives. I look back at my own life. Not that I was or am an absolute train wreck, but certainly you're like, wait a minute, I got some. But do I deserve to be up here preaching the gospel? Do I deserve to get up here and spiritually lead everybody else. No, I'm just a sinner saved by grace like anybody else here. God has given me a privilege that I do not deserve to stand up here today and open His Word and expound and explain and preach on it today. But I am thankful that God looked down and had grace on a sinner like me, an imperfect person like me, And I'm thankful he pours out that grace on all of us, on all who would believe. And no matter where you're at in your life right now, no matter where you're at in your Christian walk right now, or maybe for some of you, and I hope there are some people here, that have not made professions of faith yet. The point is this, no matter where you're at in this journey There is a place at the table for you. People are welcome here. I know some church, I don't want to pick on different places, but I've been to some churches back in the day where it was all just based on everyone that we don't like. And it was just about how exclusive of a little club that we could be. This isn't a VIP section, folks. We are all messy people who are in God's house, who have the privilege of being here today. So I want you to know that everybody is welcome here. Now, we say everybody is welcome, but yet all of us, once we're here, once we're standing before God, once we're getting into his word, yes, we say come as you are, but we don't want to just stay where we are, right? We all want to be moving forward spiritually, and that's one of the great things about going through life with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, with other believers who can help mentor us and guide us and encourage us because life at times, right, it can get a little difficult. We can hit roadblocks or we could be, you know, and trust me on this, when you are moving forward spiritually, the enemy does not like that. The forces of evil and, of, and darkness, Satan himself and little minions, they do not like that. Yet we lean on the power of the cross. We lean on one another, and there is a foundational premise that we need to understand, that while none of us deserve salvation, it's because of God's grace that has been poured out on, again, all those who believe, and that none of us are truly worthy, but he makes us worthy. In this passage, we're about to look at here in Acts 11. You got to know your biblical history, that if you were a Jew, a Jew is anything, or if you're a Gentile, a Gentile is anything that was not a Jew, all right? So, it's very easy to think about, do you have any, back then, are you a Jew? No, then you're a Gentile. They're all different types of Gentiles, all different types of countries. But in the Old Covenant, the Jewish people were selected, the Israelites were selected as the people of God. But other nations and tribes around the Israelites could symbolically become an Israelite by faith and follow Yahweh God of the Old Testament. And the Israelites were to be separate from all that which was around them, separate from the pagan culture. And they were to be that shining city on a hill that others would look towards and say, what do they have that we don't have? Our false gods, let's turn away from them and let's turn towards the God of Israel. Now, of course, it didn't always work that way because the Israelites time and time again and century after century would turn turn away to God and turn towards the false idols and the false gods, the small g-gods who are not real. But that was the ideal. And in the New Testament, now if you remember I talked about this last week, that you'll see like in certain Gospels, like in John's Gospels, it will use language about, quote, the Jewish leaders. And that's not an anti-Jewish statement in and of itself, because Jesus was a Jew. The disciples were all Jewish, but they were also individuals that, eventually came to believe and entrust as Jesus Christ as Savior. So the early Christians, who themselves were all Jewish, still had a very elevated view of their heritage because of the foundations that were set in the Old Covenant. And Peter has a vision that he's going to explain here. He had a vision earlier in Acts that we're about to read about, which tells him that, you know what, there is a place at the table for the Gentiles. And this was radical thinking back then. But the Gentiles were known to the Jewish people as dogs. They frequently could just call them dogs. Anybody here enjoy being called a dog? You know? <laughs> Somebody, at least one person. You know. But this was the view. It was it was kind of a negative view, and in the temple, you know, the temple which, the first temple torn down in 586 B.C. was rebuilt 70 years later. The second temple, which was renovated and remodeled over the years, that by the time of Jesus' life, it was at that point one of the great wonders of the world. And temple worship was where the high priest, only the high priest, could go in the Holy of Holies and, you know, make the sacrifice to God. This whole elaborate theology around temple worship. And then that temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans which ended temple worship, but there, were, there wasn't just a curtain that separated, you know, the high priests from everybody else inside of the temple. There was also a curtain in the outer courts, which the Gentiles could only go up to a certain point, and then they could no longer go any further. That only the Israelites, later known as the Jewish people, only they could go in. And now in the New Covenant, we're beginning to see what's really at hand here that there is great value in in being of the tradition and and line of Abraham. But now what it means to be a child of Abraham, Paul explains in his letters, it's Jew and Gentile united in Christ, that Christ is a great equalizer. So for us, we might think, well, of course, you know, we've done a better job in our culture. There's still too much of it, taking stands against racism. Unfortunately, it does still exist in our culture, but everybody, including people who are racist, know that they shouldn't be, and they at least try to pretend that they're not. But today, we still see other classes of individuals that the church can sometimes fail to adequately minister to. You know, several decades ago, you know, 70s and even the 80s to some degree, it was, I've I, you would hear stories of people who were going through divorce, how they were viewed as lepers in their church communities. You know, um, today, it can be controversial when a a church will have a ministry to a marginalized people group within our own borders that sometimes believers, they, they can look down on because they're living lifestyles or caught up in whatever that's contrary to Scripture. And we're not saying that we're looking to revise scriptural standards. What we are saying is that there is a scriptural standard, that there is a place at the table for all those who believe that all are sinners in need of a Savior, and that nobody should walk through our doors and feel condemned by man, feel condemned by people. They should instead be coming and laying their sins at the feet of the cross and finding redemption in Him. So with that said, let's read our passage today. Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Luke writes in the book of Acts here, The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance, I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it, and I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all of your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, and as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Who was I to think that I could oppose God. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would, through your spirit, help me adequately explain this passage, and may we find some applications for our life today. If there are some that are here today that would convince themselves that there's not a place for them at your table, may they know, Lord, that Your grace is enough. Your grace is sufficient to cover all of our sin and unrighteousness. And for those who know you but who are still struggling to find where their place may be, may we find encouragement that all of us play a part, a necessary and vital part in the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, just a couple explanatory observations here about this passage in Acts 11. Why is Peter reacting the way he does at this vision of the animals on the sheet? Well, if you were to study the old covenant law in the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch or the Torah, that is Genesis through Deuteronomy, there are laws that are given to the Israelites that govern just about almost everything you can think of. What you wear, how you act, what you eat, and there were a number of animals that were considered to be unclean that you were not allowed to eat. Now, I know that we might have some vegetarians or vegans here, but no offense to you guys, but I like bacon and it would be kind of a bummer if I couldn't eat bacon. But back then, you were not going to be eating, well, any version of eating a pig because that was seen to be that was a very unclean animal under that theology. Which is why in the 2nd century BC when one of the great persecutors of the Jewish people, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, to just thumb his nose at the Jewish people, sacrificed a pig inside of the Jewish temple. Took one of the most unclean animals that the, the Jewish people considered unclean and sacrificed it inside of the temple. It was, was was such a derogatory thing to do to the Jewish people. So, in Peter's eyes, he's just following Scripture. And quite honestly, what else did he have to go off of? You know, there have been no further revelation at this time modifying these standards that were found in the Old Testament. But now, Peter is saying, no, I have never let anything unclean into my mouth. But the point of this passage wasn't just, here's what you're allowed to eat now. There was a deeper theological meaning that is happening here, that I have... Made that, you know, I am grafting in the Gentiles into the covenant of faith. That is what this vision is overall representing. These Gentiles who you think are unclean, you're going to be criticized for going to their house. These people that you think are dogs, this unclean animal,
1: don't call unclean what I have called clean. And after he sees this vision, now he goes to the Gentile man that God led him to. And this individual in his household gives their life to the Lord.
0: What would happen if we failed to minister to groups or classes of people because we thought, well, they're just too unclean, they're irredeemable, or We're better than them, so we don't go there. That would be a massive problem. And like Peter, sometimes we can think, we can take little stands or draw some little lines in the sand because we truly think that we're, we're following Scripture,
1: but yet are missing some of the deeper meaning
0: behind it. So again, this was radical thought back then, that there would be a place at the table for the Gentiles. But God is showing how great and vast His grace is. Now, I should have mentioned it just a bit ago, if we could throw the theme of the message on the screen here. The theme is that God is drawing the most unlikely of people into serving for His kingdom, including you. God is drawing the most unlikely of people into serving for his kingdom, including you. Even Peter, who is tasked with this mission, is unlikely in some ways. You read about the the life of Peter in the New Testament. He's brass, he's abrasive, he thinks without speaking. You know, he tries to usurp Christ in a couple different instances. He talks about how he's going to be with Christ to the very end. Jesus says, no, you're going to deny me three times. No, it's not going to happen, and that's exactly what happens with Peter. By any human account, Peter would have, been, would have been done with him. He would have just proven his disloyalty or his unfaithfulness. But yet, at the end of the Gospel of John, Christ restores Peter to ministry. And Peter, the whole first, about third of the book of Acts, is primarily focused on Peter. Then the latter two-thirds focus on the Apostle Paul. But we see Peter in the book of Acts including at Pentecost doing some amazing and wonderful things on God's behalf. He's unlikely the individual who now is going to be the focus of the second to uh, the the latter portion of Acts Paul. He's an unlikely person at the table. He's an unlikely servant. He was somebody who was one of the first murderers in the church. As I pointed out before, he didn't physically drop the stone that murdered Stephen, the first Christian martyr, but he was a conspirator to murder, which under our law, and even under law back then, made you just as guilty and culpable. He was somebody who was looking to snuff out and destroy the church, and yet he becomes the church's greatest missionary. We can think throughout history of people who were unlikely
1: followers of Christ. Perhaps some of
0: you came from extremely rough and hurtful backgrounds, but yet God somehow supernaturally orchestrated your salvation, and it all comes from Him, but He was tugging on your heart and put the right people and circumstances around you. And if we have been recipients of His great grace, we cannot be stingy with that grace because we will look at our lives and say, you know what, I don't deserve God's salvation. I don't deserve the cross. I'm a sinner saved by grace, but I'm sure glad that I have his grace. If that's the case, why would we want to deprive anybody else of that which was given to us? I try to be very compassionate and understanding with people and their foibles and failures because I have them, we all have them. But I try to be understanding of not just the things that I've dealt with, but the things that I haven't dealt with. It's easier to be compassionate with that which we have personally experienced, and that is always going to be a little bit easier. It is harder when it is something that we ourselves have not dealt with. And I bring this up to say when we talk about there being a place at the table for people and ministering to people that could get us criticized, which I'm going to talk about momentarily, mentally it's easier for us to look at somebody that reminds us of us and feel compassion. Because it reminds us of us. And we want compassion from God. But when we see somebody different from us or they have sins that are different than ours,
1: because we all have sin,
0: for many of us, there could be a particular Achilles heel that we've dealt with in our lives, and we see somebody like, oh, they remind me of me 10 years ago, 20 years ago, two years ago. But sometimes we'll look at others and
1: say, how in the world are they the way they are? How could
0: they be dealing with a gambling problem? How could they be dealing with those sexual issues? How could they have that mouth on them, those vile words? How could, I mean, the list goes on and on. And it's easier to throw the stones when it's something that we don't get. But we need to understand that even though their sins might be different than ours, those sins would have sent you to hell just as quick. But for the grace of God. So we don't want to be stingy with God's grace on our end. Point number one, I'm going to go through these three points fairly quickly here. Point number one, from verses one through three, that I apply here. We are called to minister to the most unlikely of people, even when others will criticize us. This is a reality church. There will be individuals and groups that it will be safe to reach out to. Like in our evangelical context today, like if you want to minister to divorced people, that's no longer controversial. Now it's seen as good and compassionate. Not that we're saying divorce is a good thing, but we recognize that issues happen in the home and we are looking to to bring healing and wholeness to anybody. But, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, that wasn't the case. That was controversial. Today, it's the same arguments. We've just changed the the players, basically. And when you are doing ministry right, people will criticize you. You're going to get, just like Peter has to explain his actions. They said, you went to the house, in verse 3, of the uncircumcised. What does uncircumcised mean? Well, if you're a Jew, you were, you were circumcised shortly after birth and Gentiles typically weren't circumcised. So, it was just the uncircumcised. That just meant the Gentiles. You, you basically went to the house of the Gentiles and you ate with them. Jesus was criticized for dining with sinners. Nothing new under the sun. If you are going to be criticized for rubbing shoulders with sinful people, you're in good company. Now, the point isn't to take yourself down to their level. The point is to bring others up to your level, not because of any goodness in you, but because of what Christ has done in you. So I say loving others will get people talking, not always for the right reasons. They'll criticize you. You got to brush that off. You got to take that in stride and know that that criticism we find it right there in the Bible. Loving others will get people talking. Loving others will bring you criticism. You've got to now begin explaining yourself that, oh, no, no, I, I, I'm not saying that uh, I'm changing my moral stances, and you've got to go through this, all this equivocation. Don't even feel the need to do that.
1: If you're following Christ, and you're following His Word, you know, here, here's an example. You know, I have met certain people
0: involved in ministry to gang members. Why you hang around gang members? Are we saying that gangs are good? No, of course not. Are we saying that we support violence and drug trade? No, of course not. Are we saying, though, that these people need the Lord? Yes, absolutely. We have some of these kinds of ministries happening in our own backyard. They are a good thing. A ministry to the homeless. Well, why, why, you know, they're all just a bunch of drug addicts. Don't do anything from them. They're just going to squander it. They're just going to blow it. I mean, we can give example after example. We're not looking to lower our standards. We're just looking for complete standards of, yes, having good moral values, but also expending the grace of God to those who need it most, which is really all of us if we were honest. Next point. point, point number two. We continue on. We are called to minister to the most unlikely of people, especially when God will direct us. Now look here in this vision. At first, Peter is a little reluctant to to do what God is kind of leading him to do. Peter doesn't get the point. Not only does Peter not get the point at first, he's couching it in, you know, well, I've never eaten anything unclean. I've never done anything unclean. We can, church, at times couch our resistance in loving others and use the Bible as a, as a crutch to do that. Like Peter, we must challenge our presuppositions of others. If you were Peter here and those like him, you thought that, you know, we're, we're not here to really talk with these Gentiles. Even though the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost and now we see people of every tribe and tongue praising Christ, It still bothered people. It's still controversial. If we have a presupposition that person A or person B or group A or group B is beyond redemption, well, that's going to guide the way we think and how we minister. If, though, we start with the presupposition that all of us are sinners in need of a Savior and that God is calling us to minister to even the most unlikely of people, well, that's going to change the way that we interact with others. Like Peter, we must make sure our views are, in fact, the biblical view. What do I mean by that? Well, here, again, Peter is thinking that his reluctance is biblical. And in fairness, what did he have to operate off? He needs a divine vision from the Lord himself to clarify his understanding. We have God's Word in its entirety. There's nothing to be added to the Word of God. There's nothing to be taken away. All of it is eternally true. So, if we're going to be quoting the Bible to guide our steps, let's make sure that we are properly interpreting and implying it. Point number three. We are called to minister to the most unlikely of people and not try to get in God's way. Now, after Peter explains his vision and after he is going through what happened to him, and now Peter sees that this man who he's ministering to and his
1: household is coming to the Lord and
0: has given their lives to the Lord. So Peter concludes, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I to think that I could oppose God? Now, we don't ever say it this way, but sometimes our actions will try to, well, our actions will show that we think we know more than God sometimes. Or we think that we're going to get God to, you know, deviate and change his mind and adopt our great human way of thinking. Instead of Jesus take the wheel, it's Jesus sit back and enjoy the ride. As we're on a head-on collision course, whatever a bad life decision
1: is. Aren't you glad about the fact that you're not God? I love it when people try to lecture God like they know more than him. It's like, you've done nothing but screw up since you came out of the womb because you're human and you're trying to lecture God. That's
0: not the way it works. So when God is calling us to minister to, quote, difficult people in our community or difficult unreached groups, not just overseas but right here in our backyard, we have to go where
1: God leads And have no hesitation
0: if it's truly of God. It might be difficult. We might need His power, His strength, and authority. But we don't want to resist God and fight with God and argue with God. Or only selectively like what's in His Word. People of all different theological stripes will do that. We have certain things that sit a little easier with us, certain scriptural principles that are easier for us to grasp. Other things that will make us more uncomfortable can be more difficult. But there's another major emphasis here. For those of us who are on the receiving end of God's grace, when I say go towards and accept God's grace with no hesitation, and I know that's easier said than done, because I know in a room of this size, there are going to be individuals that say to themselves, I'm too unperfect. I'm too unworthy. I've committed too many sins. I feel too far from God. If God can change the heart and lives of murderers,
1: killers, rapists, liars, frauds, And on and on and on. You
0: really mean to tell me that you think God can't work in your life? Do you think that there is any sin that is too big
1: for the cross?
0: Christ, when he suffered and bled and died, he took upon himself the sins of all those who would believe there was not fine print in a contract excluding you. In fact, if you're struggling with accepting the fact that there is a place at the table for you, that there is a God that loves you, there are churches like ours whose doors are open to you, if you're struggling with that fact, I'm asking you as we wind down the service after communion a little bit, put those fears, to put those reservations at the foot of the cross. Because I am telling you with the full authority of God's Word is. Somebody, as I said earlier, doesn't deserve to be preaching and teaching this stuff. But yet, with the full authority of Scripture, I am telling you that there is a place at the table for you. I am telling you that Christ gave His life for you. I am telling you that God loves you, even if you feel like you can't love yourself. Even if your earthly father and mother did not give you the love that you needed and deserved, even if other people have hurt you and rejected you, there is a God in heaven who is calling you into his presence. And it doesn't matter what your background is, what your sins you've committed. We're not saying those things are good or okay. What we are saying is that is evidence of how much God does in fact love you. And if he's calling out your name
1: today, will you listen and accept? Will you give him his heart, your heart?
0: In conclusion, I'll go to the last slide on this. I say no further objections and praise God for what he's doing in your life and the lives of others. What do I mean by eight Verse 18 when they heard this, those around Peter heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. So for those of us who are in the family of faith, let's not have any objection who God is leading us to preach his word to. And if you're here today and you're struggling with accepting the love of Christ, don't object The love of God, which He is looking to pour out on you. Instead, all of us praise God for what He's doing in your life and in the lives of others. Let today be the day of salvation for those who are in need of God's grace, or let today be a day of healing for those who feel far from God.